This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. You know what it is. We've got a special treat for you guys today. You guys have requested that we do more ENP related podcasts. So we did one with David Ramsonwood. We did one with Seth Blackwell. And now we're back with our good buddy, Yusuf Chaudhry. It's a beautiful pronunciation of my last name. I, tr- I tried to like make it sound Dude, he made that really fancy. That was fancy. That was the most it's effort a, you've ever put in pronunciation. I, I usually butcher name. people's names. Yeah. So let's give a little context. So this is different because usually we come in, we talk to people that we don't know. I've known you for like five or six years. Obviously. So we first met, what, 2013? Something like that, yeah. 2013. We got linked up through your brother, Bobber. So Bobber and I were business partners for GDS, where when I first met Yusuf, he was a strapping young lad with (laughs) a... (laughs) What's changed? I want to know what's changed. With a a massive curly mustache. Oh, man, my curly mustache. Can you bring the curly mustache back? So if I bring it back, I used to get literally laughed at i kid you not i would get in elevators with people and people would start giggling and you know me right i'm not gonna just sit there and be like oh i'm so embarrassed i would just stare right into their soul <laughs> and i would just curl it and i mean i would just look directly into their eyes just curling like, my mustache have you ever seen the movie hook and like, hook himself like, like the peter pan movie? Yeah, yeah 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 you know how his mustache was like super crazy yeah. cur- that was yusuf so that's like he straight, was brown captain hook a straight boss moves Especially like with your hair right now, man, you like you got the lines man going. I could just see you having that curly mustache, like you got to to cap Dude, off the look. I would look like a literal villain if I if I brought back <laughs> the mustache. People would you look at me it. and be like, Okay, I would get the I would get extra security pat downs more than I already do with I just airport. feel like but you know, you come into a meeting to close an oil deal and that gives you like extra leverage. It's like you're just looking at them across the table and you got this badass mustache, like they're gonna respect you. Man, I've seen I've seen every part of the on the at the closing table. I've been at a closing table where they really didn't like me and they actually signed in different rooms. And I've been at closings where they're just I mean, they we hugged each other. We were just best of friends. So I've seen it all. So it doesn't matter. I and I thought the intimidation, I thought that's the way I'm gonna do this deal where this guy really doesn't like me all that much. And and I found out later on he actually did like me and he just didn't want to sell the assets at the time and it made sense and <laughs> We should talk about that later in the show. Some of your secrets to closing deals. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit. You know, people ask us all the time. People are so intrigued. It's funny. All the startups that we have come on this show, people are still intrigued by people that run EMPs. They want to know how do you start an EMP? How do you go out buying assets? You know, how do you finance these assets? How do you close deals, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a lot of questions that we can ask you along those lines. First off, what's the name of your company? So I'm the executive vice president of Atlas Operating. That's our operating company that uh, we operate, I believe, in seven different states now across the lower 48 and slowly actually trying to make our way into Canada as well now. There's some deals that we're looking at in upper Alberta. Awesome. So, So, I mean, you guys got assets all over right now, like Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas. Yes, sir. We got them in. uh, So Louisiana, Louisiana, Texas. Oklahoma, Kansas, Wyoming, California, Colorado, New Mexico. Jesus Christ. Going for all 50 states. If they got oil there, you'll be there, huh? If there's oil there, we'll find it. I'll <laughs> sniff it out. 
And these are all conventional assets that you guys are focused on, right? So we are focused on conventional assets, but as the company's been growing over the past couple of years, we've been actually looking at some non-conventional stuff and we're actually starting to look a little bit deeper into horizontal plays and whatnot. And over the past, uh, I would say... 24 months we bought quite a few horizontal wells as well so oh very cool i don't know that yeah so now we're actually starting to grow into a different space because you know essentially what we used to look at is just you know great pdp deals legacy assets sometimes even just stripper wells and that made us you know quite a bit of money that was our bread and butter for a while but then we said all right let's think a little bit bigger right we want to make this company big we want to make this company much bigger than what it was when it first started and where it was when i first started as well so now we're looking at non-conventional stuff, horizontal stuff. We have quite a bit of acreage in the Permian that we're looking to develop. A less talked about area that uh, we really like is the Eagleford slash Barnett. And I shouldn't say less talked about. It's just it's not as sexy right now mm-hmm. because everybody wants to be in the Permian, right? But I mean, if you're going to be in the Permian, there's a price of admission there. If you're not already there, you're going to pay top dollar. It's definitely you know? premium. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity in other plays right now. If you have the right strategy and capital provider to attack some of the assets in other plays with everyone consolidating to the Permian. Yeah. So the difference about you guys for those for those listening is that, you know, most EMPs are either private equity backed or yeah, mostly just private equity backed, I guess. Yeah. Not or public yeah. companies. You guys are a family owned company. Your dad started this 30, 40 years ago. So let's kind of go back a little bit to the the founding story. Because so, so for those of you listening, you can't see this, but those of you who are watching on video, you can see Colin's holding up. So Yusuf's dad at Eunice Chaudhry actually just wrote a book. What's it called? It's uh, from Dirt Roads to Black Gold, An Oil Man Follows His Destiny from a Small Village to the Mansions of Texas. So I think this is going to be a really cool story. Obviously, I've known his dad for quite some time, and I think it's going to be a pretty good read. So just give us a little backstory on... Obviously, we don't want to ruin the book, but just give us a little backstory of how everything came to be, your dad coming from Pakistan, and then leading up to where you're at today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, even being his son, I want to preface by saying I thought this book would be a spoil for me because I know his backstory. He's my father, right? I know everything about him. I know his ins, his outs, his nuances, how he does business, what his business techniques are, and all that kind of fun stuff that goes along with what made him who he is today. But the amount of time and effort that he put into that book and actually really outlining how he came to America and how he started. I mean, he literally came to America. He came to Canada, to Edmonton with, I mean, 30 bucks. And he had to give, I think, 15 of it at immigration when he, when he showed up. Didn't understand English. Didn't understand, couldn't read, couldn't write, couldn't do any of that. Found a way to bootstrap his way and just any way that he could to sell because he was a fantastic seller. So I always thought to myself, okay, I'm a natural born seller. I didn't really think about that. I, you know, on the A&D space in our company, I would say I'm pretty, you know, without being too braggadocious, I'm pretty damn good at what I do. (laughs) And I was like, okay, this is just, you know, a God-given talent. I'm a people person I'd like to think. And, you know, I can look at a deal and I can deduce what needs to be done to get it done pretty quick. But reading the book, and I don't want to spoil it either, it comes from him. He kind of came to this country, bootstrapped his way in, met with farmers, met with landowners, met with mineral owners, and kind of just leveraged multiple tracts of land, put them together, brought his brother in, which is my uncle, and he was an engineer Schlumberger at the time, and he mentions that in the book, and they kind of used their expertise, my father's selling ability and buying ability, and then my uncle's actual expertise in the oil field 
and they combined and they just kind of made a way to make it great. And I think they shortly realized thereafter that, you know, my uncle wanted to, I think, move to Los Angeles and my dad wanted to move to Houston. So they kind of went their separate ways. And my dad started pioneer exploration down here in Houston, not to be confused with pioneer natural resources. Um, <laughs> I don't want to say we're as big. So you're telling your, your dad's not Scott Sheffield? <laughs> no, we are We are not. But, you know, we. I think we actually started, we're the original pioneer. They are pioneer natural resources, but we're pioneer exploration. Nice. Uh, but I'll get to how we consolidated into Atlas operating soon. Well, so it's pretty interesting. Let me interrupt you real quick. That Your dad came over to North America without the ability to read or write, and he wrote this entire book himself right like he didn't have a ghost author no write this no this was all him he literally spent the past four and a half years writing this book because he took his time he didn't want to just regurgitate whatever was you know immediately in his mind he went back to his roots in pakistan and what he his childhood he thought about all the stuff that he saw as a kid yeah and he outlines that in the book and then he outlines you know when he first came over here i didn't know that because i mean my dad doesn't need ice cream and his favorite food was ice cream when he came to america he was just like I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world, the sweet treat. <laughs> yeah. and, and to him, I mean, to us growing up here, and I was born and raised in Houston, I'm like, ice cream is just, I mean. Just ice cream. It's just ice cream, right? <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. But to him, he was like, this is the coolest thing in the world. It tastes delicious. It's cold because it gets hot. He's like, I can't believe this is even an invention. Yeah. So that's how, that's how far he came from. He came from a village where I think, I mean, indoor plumbing was I don't even want to call it a luxury. I don't think it existed. Yeah. And now he's kind of, you know, living in River Oaks. It's kind of a big difference from, yeah. you know, living in a hut made of mud to living in River Oaks. So you, did, so you said your dad wasn't even an engineer or geologist or anything. He just had the selling ability, but your uncle had the expertise. So yeah. how did he so how did he even find oil? So what they did was so I think they found a way to leverage each other's abilities. So my father would go to these farmers, to these landowners, and he would say, Hey, listen. There's a pumping unit over there, right? And based off of what I can tell, it's not running. And you know how he would tell if it wasn't running? He would literally sit there all day and all night and see if it would turn on. That's how he would tell. Not through going through logs or anything like that. He literally just would sit, stare at a pumping unit, and it wouldn't run. So he would say, hey, listen, it's not running. Why don't you show me your well log? Why don't you show me this? And I think at that time, people were a little bit more, this is you know late 70s, early 80s. People didn't know what a well log really, I don't want to say they didn't know what it was, but a farm owner that just had a, you know, a thousand acres of land, if you had a pumping unit there, he really didn't care about it unless it was making him money. My uncle would look through the logs, they would figure out what was wrong with the well or what was right with the well. And then they would explain it to the farm owner, mineral owner, whoever it was. And when I say farm owner, I'm, I'm trying to say surface owner. So whoever it was, they would present a plan to them and say that, hey, listen, either we can recomplete this well for you. Why don't you throw in some capital with us? And at that time, I think it was like, you know, a couple thousand bucks to do a full recompletion or something like that. And they would do that. And sure enough, they would they would succeed. And they just kept on doing it. And then eventually they grabbed a group of people and they grabbed a big chunk of land and they actually just bought it. And then they took all these P&A wells that were producing, I think, like half a barrel a day. Half a barrel a day in, in the 80s was a P&A. I mean, no production, no nothing. So they would grab this well and they would revitalize it. However they did that, I don't know, it was in the 80s. I wasn't born at that time. But <laughs> however they did it, they would make money and they just kept doing it. And they wouldn't stop. I mean, they were the original definitions of workaholics. I mean, I always thought like, you know, even now today as a millennial, 
and I do not identify as a fucking millennial. <laughs> Even today as a millennial, I think I work pretty hard, right? I wake up in the morning around 5 a.m., 6 a.m., and I'm at the office until about you know 6, 7 p.m. at night, and I think I work pretty hard. And to them, that was just – that was a regular day in the office. They are mm-hmm. like, that's not extra work. That's not hard work. And hard work is working 22 hours a day out of 24 hours. They're like, that's hard work. Yeah. And finding a way to function off of sleep. I remember I walked into my dad's office one day, and I, I think I yawned. And he was just – and he literally looked at me. And Jake knows my father. My father's when it comes to business, he's pretty stern. And I remember yawning, and he just looked at me and – he didn't say a word. He was he was holding a meeting and he, he didn't say he just stopped talking and he just looked straight at me. And I was confused. I'm like, if I did uh, did I miss something? And he just looked at me and he and asked, Why are you yawning? And I'm like, I didn't get much sleep. I didn't know why I was literally stuttering because I would just put there was a group of like five or six people in his office and he just stopped talking and just stared at me. Why are you yawning? And so I didn't get enough sleep. And he's just like, is that really your excuse to come in here and to say that I didn't get enough sleep? And to kind of put it bluntly, he would just say that, listen, you got to develop some thick skin if you want to become something. He's like, yeah, he's like, you have everything. And my father gave me everything. I didn't have to want for anything. I didn't have a tough story of, you know, hardship to kind of get there like he did. I was given the metaphorical and literal keys to a Ferrari. And he told me (laughs) and he just said, listen don't fuck it up. That was it. He said, just don't fuck it up. And if you do, you know, I'll know it and you'll just be a failure. And he was just, he was just blunt about it. He sees Yusuf well, Yon and he's like, hey, look, little baby back bitch. Better, <laughs> better get your shit together. <laughs> the thing is that I think a lot of people could easily just sit here and talk shit and be like, oh, like, you know, you're kind of given everything and you're entitled and this and that. But the reality is you started off with a company at data entry and knowing and being around your dad and seeing y'all's interactions and stuff, he never took, he took it harder on you than like by like 10 times over than anybody else in that office. And so you started off in a shit job doing data entry and he made you learn the business from the ground up. Man, and I am so, so thankful that he did that because I've seen so many people that have been in my similar situation that I've seen that their fathers are generational companies. They've walked in and they've become vice presidents or whatever they've become and they're running alongside their father and i think their fathers didn't have the you know you love your kid right and they Mm -hmm. don't want to let their kid fall and they would always you know essentially they would pacify them and that's exactly the opposite of what my dad dad did with me and he said listen he's like and like jake you're right he was very hard on me he was if you fuck up then i'm gonna take it harder on you than i will on anybody else but he said one day you're gonna thank me and i'm now i'm 28 i mean i'm not I don't consider myself that old. I feel pretty young. He's just like, I'm not a millennial. Yeah. Like, I'm 28. I'm like, no, dog, you're the very definition of a millennial. <laughs> I hate am, to break it to you, man. Uh, no, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a millennial. I actually, I enjoy avocado toast, guys. Well, so, I was oh, talking no. at this, uh, I was talking at some conference the other day, and I was like, man, everyone talks about millennials. Like, we're still sitting around watching Saturday morning cartoons and eating Pop-Tarts or some shit. I was like, dude, we're like 30 years old. We're married, have kids, mortgages. <laughs> it's, it's not as, yeah, millennials aren't as glorious as they sound. We're not just sitting around <laughs> with fidget spinners all day. <laughs> <laughs> I totally Vaping. forgot about that. 
I mean, to be honest, though, Corva did give us that Rubik's Cube block, and we sit around the office fucking around with that all day, so <laughs> they are catering to their, their millennial audience. <laughs> but no, that's one thing like I respect about you, man, is that, you know, coming from Midland, I have friends that their parents started big companies, and they literally have all the opportunity in the world to you know, kind of be the successors to those companies. And one, they're lazy and coddled. They don't mm-hmm. have the willingness to get in there and actually learn the business. So they're not able to. Like literally one of my good friends told me one time, he's like, man, my parents spoiled the fuck out of me and it's crippled me. Mm-hmm. He's like, it's crippled me. And he's like, I don't have the work ethic or even the will to go and learn the business and I could take over it. And I mean, this huge service company out in West Texas. So, you know, just because you have the opportunity, you still have to do everything to execute on it and take it and run with it. Absolutely, man. And the fact that your friend is self-aware enough to be like, hey, listen, I don't have the wherewithal to go and do this because I was given everything. Hey, man, that's a win in itself. If he just takes that energy and just, and anybody, you take that energy of understanding your biggest weaknesses and you kind of focus on that because, you know, I always kind of grew up, I'm like, I will focus on my weaknesses before I will my strengths because my strengths are already there. They're going to be there, but my weaknesses will go away. And that's something that my father focused on. And I just took my weaknesses and I just said, listen, I'm going to just grind these into the ground until they're gone. They're still there. They're not gone yet. Yeah. Um, I still have quite a few weaknesses and I will, man, I'm fucking human. I'm, and I get that about <laughs> myself. Everyone has weaknesses, man. We always, I mean, it's just like continuing, you know, just evolution of becoming better. And as you become better in other areas, you're going to become weaker in others. So you know, it's always, if only you could just be better at jujitsu. Okay. Oh, dude, <laughs> let's, let's call. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to publicly shame. This is perfect. Perfect entrance right, perfect into public shaming. Go. So I got Yusuf, you know, we convinced him to come train jujitsu, man. He was into it. I was like, dude, he's going to be a killer. And then he just he just left us, man. He just abandoned me. Okay. All right. Let me defend myself, okay? I have a rebuttal for all this. And my rebuttal is I have no rebuttal. You don't have, <laughs> you don't have kids. You don't have. <laughs> dude, I literally thought about it because Jake would text me every once in a while. And he would literally send me pictures of myself when I was younger. I mean, he would, he would just, he would be like, hey, what's up, bitch? Why aren't you coming to jiu-jitsu? And I mean, he wasn't he wasn't kind about it. He wasn't like, hey, Yusuf, whenever you get a shot, why don't you come join us like, again? Hey, buddy, you should come back to the gym. <laughs> no, he, he let me know. You know what, what happened is I got had a small injury that just kind of snowballed its way down. And then I just kind of got caught up in work. And we've been focused on some of these deals. And I've been in the office a lot more. I haven't really been able to find some time for myself, which is honestly, it's a shitty excuse. I'm not going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm so busy. And there's 24 hours in the day. I could have found some time, but frankly, I got to start. I got to start coming again. I'm going to start coming again. You felt great when you're coming, right? Dude, I felt amazing when I was I'm coming. I'm telling you, man. That's what I'm telling like everyone in business. I'm just like, dude, take some time out for yourself. Come to the gym. It's therapeutic. And you, no, feel, it, you feel good about yourself. It literally was therapeutic. I remember I texted you one day, Colin. I was like, dude, thank you for introducing myself to this. But I also kind of became a monster because I would just walk into places and I'd be like, I could arm bar that guy. I could do this. I mean, I would just. Dude, like, have, uh, every single person, like, you go to shake my hand, I've already sized you up to see how I'm going to take you down. Like, if you shake my hand and you try to, like, you know, like Trump does that thing, like, he'll shake someone's hand and, like, pull towards pull him. him. Yeah, yeah. You do that to me, motherfucker, I'm going to arm drag you and it's not something you want to open up. Yeah, no, that's, that was one of those things. And I want to be, I want to be clear. I was probably, I mean, when I was thinking that I could, I could literally ruin everybody's life in jujitsu. I was probably one of the worst <laughs> beginners in the world at the time that I thought this, right? And I think I got a little bit better with time, 
But uh, I got to get back in there because Jake's telling me that he could whoop my ass down and all that I stuff. I know, man. You can't let that happen. I yeah, that's that happen. This is my leverage to get you back in the gym. I'm just going to public shame you. That way you have to come back. So right. now now you owe it to all of our you listeners. Got, you to got 31,000 people know that you've, <laughs> you've fallen off no, the wagon. No pressure. <laughs> Guys, I'll do it. Trust me. So, so man, if, uh, if anybody else is interested, free plug for Revolution Dojo. Yeah. <laughs> come check us out. <laughs> So I remember a while back, you told me, you told me a pretty good quote that I actually liked, you know, we're, we're talking about one thing I really like about you is, you know, you are self-aware, you're like, man, my, my dad, you know, he gave me, you know, you just said it right there. He gave me the keys to the Ferrari. And I remember one time you told me, you're like, yeah, it's cool. Like I have one Ferrari, but I want four Ferraris. You know, you're wanting to take it to the next level. And, you know, you kind of touched base on that, just talking about getting into the uh, horizontal plays now. And so that's, you know, there's always stages to a company's growth, right? And so it's pretty cool to see that your dad, you know, took it from, you know, zero to one. And now you're looking to take the reins and take it, you know, from one to 10 and actually scale it up. And so how are you guys? I mean, you guys don't take any outside capital, right? It's all privately funded. I think you do. Do you guys do RBLs and take on debt or? So, you know what? We, I don't want to say we don't take on any outside capital. So what we did is, I mean, we had a big, facility out with some major banks in 2013 2013 i mean we had a $120 of, of oil mm-hmm. i mean everybody was a winner nothing was going wrong but at the end of 2013 you know everybody started to see that there's a downtick in oil what's going on it's in the 90s now and and what's really happening but you know we're a very analytics driven company and if you look at it from an analytical standpoint oil had dropped about 30 to 40% and just looking at it from that perspective, immediately our financial modeling comes into place and we're like, listen, we got to start getting rid of some of this debt. And we had, it was over a hundred million dollars of debt that we had. And it was outstanding. And what we did was, is my brother-in-law who's actually the CFO of the company. He recognized what it was. And he said, listen, we got to, our only concern needs to be debt elimination. Get rid of this debt. Because if oil prices go to, let's say at that time, we thought it was crazy. If it went, goes down to 70, Man, we're... Then you can't even pay interest payments. Yeah, we're going to be in trouble. So luckily, by, I would say, August of 2014, debt-free. We were ending 2014 debt-free. And sure enough, oil was about 75, or I think it might have been under 70 at that point. And you guys were able just to edge out of it right before it dropped, huh? Yeah, right before it dropped. So we go into 2015 literally debt-free. We're broke, though, right? Don't have a dollar. But, you know... Something that I think we didn't account for in our oil and gas forecasting is that we had a lot of producing wells. We have thousands of producing wells. So a couple of months, our cash flow started, you know, regenerating because we cut down our operating expenses. I mean, GNA was down. We were running as lean as you possibly could at that time. Let's so let's dive into that really quickly because you got me thinking about this. David Ramsen went today actually posted a hot take of the day talking about executives' compensation and just you know negative free cash flow for a lot of these companies. I think he was talking about Abraxas and a couple of other these companies. And I remember back then you were like, we are pretty much taking no salaries. It was like you and I think even Bob was working with your dad's company at the time. You guys pretty much just cut your salaries almost, maybe not entirely, but as much as you possibly could. You guys cut like every possible expense. It was super lean mode. I think a lot of other companies can take, you know, a play from that playbook. No, absolutely. I remember what you're talking about because we went into 2015 and essentially it just came into the fact of, listen, either we're going to lay off a bunch of people or we're going to get out of this, right? And that was one of those things that I did. And at that time, I actually just got promoted to VP. So I was, I mean, I was data entry. I was railroad commission 
you know, work. I don't want to call it. I was about to call it bitch work. It's not bitch work. No, there's nothing bitch that's, work no, about no, it. It's, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's intense stuff. If you actually, you know, once you dive into it, it's intense stuff. There's nothing. There's no amount of bitch work. It doesn't matter even if it's data entry. It doesn't matter what it was. That's something that my dad, you know, instilled in me. But I went from data entry to project engineer to, I mean, I was digging ditches as a rastabout at one point. I mean, I was doing literally every part of the oil and gas. And I think that's why I, was, I got a little bit more respect because I could talk about literally anything and I wasn't just bullshitting. I had done it. I felt it. I know, you know, when a rig operator would shut down because it was 110 degree heat, a lot of the people in the office would be like, listen, it's, I mean, it's tough out there right now in the middle of summer. And I'd be like, listen, it is, it's brutal. I mean, people are passing out. People are, I mean, we would, at one point, I think, you know, a lot of companies got rid of some of the dog houses that had air conditioning. I was like, not us because it is, it's rough out there. And that's literally all you can, that's the only, it's the only relief from the sun. It's, I mean, it's the only safe haven. <laughs> it's only safe. So anybody who doesn't know what a doghouse is, it's pretty much, it's not an, a literal doghouse. It's where, you know, the rig guys, the, the roustabouts, it's like a small little trailer that has a little bit of AC, just a little bit of safe haven away from, from the, the brutal surroundings of the outside world. So, so what we did to go back to your point, Jake, is that, you know, me and my father and a few others on the executive team, we just said that, no. We're not going to cut staff. We're going to make it through this. And I remember I had a hoorah talk with everybody. And I just said, listen, I'm not going to cut salaries unless it's absolutely necessary. If somebody's making a ridiculous amount of money, then yeah, I'll have a conversation with you. And we had some conversations and everybody understood. And that was the best part about our company is that they realized that I reduced my salary to pennies. And I just decided that, listen, this is for the greater good of the company. And, you know, there's people who are much more invested than I am, I'd like to think, right? I have, I would like to think that I have a little bit of safety in the company being a family company. But let's say the, you know, the girl in data entry, she's making whatever she's making an hour. This is how she feeds her family. Mm -hmm. This is how she goes home. This paycheck means a lot to her, right? If not everything to her. And I just couldn't look at that and be like, listen, we're just going to cut everybody's salary and, you know, tough shit. And I'm driving around, I'm pulling up in a Ferrari. I couldn't do that. And I, I sold my Ferrari at that time. I got rid of it. Cause I was like, I'm not going to, you know, it, it just looks like absolute shit. You pull up in a Ferrari and everybody's just going bankrupt or whatever's, you know, whatever's happening. And, you know, kind of adjusted to the environment. And it was a quick learning curve. And I remember my dad telling me, I was just like, yeah, I'm VP and I'm, I'm managing all these people, but oil is literally tanking right now. What do I do? And he's just like, well sucks to suck figure it out right this is the best learning tool right if yeah. you make it out of this you'll make it through anything and i think i think you're exactly right i think for one you starting at the bottom like you said data entry roustabout regulatory stuff all the way up to where now you're running everything and then on top of that going through the downturn and experiencing that and i think because of that i think probably over the last year or two years i feel like you've done so many new deals great deals that have just dramatically increased y'all's production and the size of the company. Yeah, we're really, really lucky to have that. And what happened was, Jake, you remember the first time I started looking at deals, and I think it was like 2016, I went with you to an event, and my mindset was is that I got to just buy everything, right? And I remember going into this event, <laughs> and I would literally introduce myself, and I'd be like, Yusuf Chaudhry. What you selling? And I would literally just put my hand out there, and I was like the used car salesman. Yeah. <laughs> Yusuf was literally the worst networker. I thought I thought I thought I was going to show some more. Really, than I don't see, oh, He I was was so past tense. I thought I was going to learn something showing up, and it was literally a lesson in like what not to do. He was just like, Yusuf Chaudhry, I'm going to buy your company. Yeah. And it was just like, 
probably not the best straight line approach to take. And I remember um, a guy, I don't remember who it was. And if you're listening, I'm sorry, man. But you looked at me and you're like, I'm not selling. Rum. And I remember being like, well, then you're no use to me. And I just walked away. <laughs> and uh, He's just walking up. He's like, hey, I'm Yusuf. Never heard of me? You should. <laughs> good the fuck is this guy? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much in, in hindsight, in retrospect. I was like, man, I was such a, I don't want to call myself an asshole, but I was a little bit too abrupt and I just wanted to buy, 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 because I realized at that time that everybody was going under, uh, not everybody. A lot of people were going under. They couldn't afford some of their non-core assets. Some of them, some companies couldn't afford their core assets. So I was just, I had this mindset that you just have to keep buying and buying and buying and buying. And I went through about, you know, a six to seven month learning curve of, of realizing that you just can't buy everything. And if if you want to buy everything, you better have some capital ready. And that's when we kind of re-engaged a few larger banks as well and, and developed strategic relationships to understand that, hey, we have capital here and we want to grow with you guys. And we've been very lucky in the fact, and frankly, you know, we have a great operating team with great engineers, you know, great geologists, great executive team. We have, there's a really, really fantastic group of people who kind of keep us leveled and grown. And I rely on them so heavily that I'll look at a deal and it'll be frankly outside of our budget, which is pretty large at this point. And they can look at a deal and I'll just be gung ho and I'll be like, we have to buy this. There's no way around it. There's, this is the greatest deal in the world. But They'll look at it from an unbiased perspective, from a PDP perspective, decline curves. They, they're, you know, they're little, you know, they're engineers, right? They're, they're really, really intelligent. And I'll look at it and they'll be like, whatever I think a great payout is, they'll just look at me and they'll be like, listen, man, we hate to break it to you, but it's not that good of a deal and you probably shouldn't buy it. And there's been a lot of humbling experiences like that. And I've been very lucky to have a good team that's been supporting me. So let's me talk about some of these homely experiences. What are, what are some of the most expensive mistakes you've made? Oh, Jake, don't ask me that, man. Yeah, it's, I'm it's, on the spot with that Yeah, one. it's okay. So let's put it this way. So one, there was one company, and I'm not going to name any names, but there was a company, a smaller oil and gas company, and he was showing me his wells. It was a family-owned company. They didn't look to be financially stable. And that's something that we thought we could, you know, we could use to our advantage, you know, and I don't want to say to our advantage. I make that pretty clear from the beginning. I'm like, listen, you guys are going to go bankrupt. And instead of going bankrupt, why don't you save the company, sell us the assets, you leave on top, right? And we'll just buy out the assets. So I was looking at these assets, the production looked good. The water looked high. It produced a lot of water and it had ESPs on the well. So my most expensive mistake that I've made, which I'm lucky enough, knock on wood, it wasn't that expensive in the grand scheme of things. I looked at their their lease operating statement and I was like, I could run an ESP a little bit better than that. I could do this better. I could do this better. I'm going to buy this well. They're, and they were kind of losing money at that point. Like, I'm going to buy these wells. And they only produce like 20 barrels a day. It wasn't, it wasn't anything that that substantial where it was going to make or break our company, right? It was just a nice little bolt on and I knew the guy personally and I'm like, okay, we can make this deal happen. And we take over the, and the day of taking over, the well goes down. The main well goes down. It's a hole in tubing. And we have, and we have our own service company. We have quite a few workover rigs. So, you know, I talked to the engineers, where's the closest workover rig? And it's about four hours away. And I'm like, okay, let's get it over there. And they're like, well, we got it. We have the schedule and we're going to go to this one, this one, this one, all very good wells that we wanted to hit. So I said, okay, you know what? Hire an outside rig company. Hire this outside rig company, which was, I think they were about $230 an hour. 
expensive for this well. And I'm like, hire them. It's I think we're looking at about two to three days of work. You know, I kind of understood what we were getting ourselves into. And, you know, the hole in tubing, we realized the tubing was all bad in this well. And so this hole in tubing job turned pretty expensive pretty quick for the relative what the payout was for this specific mm-hmm. well. I made like eight or nine barrels a day, this this one well. So bringing in new tubing for, I think the well was about 9,000 feet. 9,000 feet of tubing, you know, the cost of the outside workover rig. And then we put it back online. So we're, we're already in the hole now, right? So we're like- and Probably okay, just double your payback. Yeah, so I'm like, we- we're not to the fun part yet, Jake. So we double our <laughs> payback and then we start looking at the lease operating statement and how we're going to become more efficient with it. And we start, and somebody pointed this out in our company and I didn't listen. And this was my, this was my mistake. And somebody said that there's no electrical cost for the ESPs. If you're running this much water, you got a lot of electricity there. And I was like, it's not on the LOS. Don't worry about it. Right. And then these guys weren't malicious. They were just a small mom and pop shop and they just forgot to put on the ele- electrical costs. And I think, frankly, I don't think they might even didn't pay their bills. And we got this, we got our electrical bills and we we're running about $12,000 a month in just electricity. Damn. So add another $12,000. The wells become completely uneconomic now. Now the wells are not making any money. They are making money. They're just, the expenses are so high that we can't even get around it because to produce, we have to produce quite a bit of water. It's a very low oil cut. And you know, I quickly realized that, hey, you know, a lease operating statement might not always be what it looks like. And keep your eyes open for the random cost, right? Because I'm like, okay, ESP, great. I know what that costs. A lot of water is being run. Okay, I know what that costs. I got a disposal there. This all works out. But something I didn't think about was that hidden cost of that electrical bill of running these wells and running that ESP and getting all that fluid out. So there was stuff like that that I quickly learned, but I would say that was my most expensive mistake because that deal, it was a couple hundred thousand dollars and I don't think we're ever going to recover that a couple hundred thousand dollars, but I quickly learned on some of the larger deals to keep, you know, keep my eye out for something like that. And that's something I'm really blessed with my father. My father, is, he understands that once I make a mistake, I learn from him pretty damn quick. And he's not one of those guys that, you know, he's, he's hard on me, but he knows that, all right, listen, you made that mistake. Just don't let it happen again. Mm-hmm. That it happens, you learn, you build a little bit of scar tissue, move on, go to the next deal, stop thinking about that. And I've learned quite a bit of that from there. And that's, I would say that that thick skin mentality kind of comes now from there is that understand, hey, realize your mistake, stop, think about what you did there. Think about what your mistake was. Don't let it happen again. Forget about it, move on. And I would say that's really, I would say that was our most expensive mistake. That's what's so tough about buying PDP or existing assets is that, you know, even if, you know, just say that the LOS, the lease operating statement was all kosher and they had all of their electricity accounted for and everything still looked good. You go in there, you get a hole in the tubing. It turns out the whole string of the tubing's bad. It's so hard to, how are you supposed to do their due diligence to know that the well is mechanically sound, you know, it has integrity, especially, you know, if that hole developed after they, they sold it to you, you know, it, it sucks, right? Like, and always, yeah, it's always the whole developed always after they sold it to you, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's the way we look at it, it's you really got to trust your operator too now, right? Like, and you're right, there's really no way to, to look at it other than pulling all the tubing out and checking it, right? Mm-hmm. And then let's say you do that and you're like, okay, my tubing's great. How do you know your casing's not going to collapse tomorrow? Yeah. There's <laughs> no way to know this stuff. And that's what oil and gas is, man. It's gambling. It really is gambling. That's what I tell people. So, man, you have so many mechanical problems that could go wrong in this well bore any day, whether it's downhole or on the surface. I mean, even with our stripper wells when we bought them, 
know, it's like fucking every single day something's breaking on them. It's like we've replaced every piece of equipment. It's like, how come these things have run all these years with no problems? And the second that we buy them, everything yeah. starts breaking. Yeah. It's like the seller goes out there and just takes a hammer to a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, fuck these guys. <laughs> oh, man. that's There was a lot of stuff like that. So we have a lot of stripper walls like that. And we've seen that, man, just happen on so many different areas where you spend all this money on a well and you think that it's going to you know, be fine. And then all of a sudden you get a call from the, you know, the pumper in the field. They're like, Hey, the belts got thrown off and mm -hmm. how the belts get thrown off. Well, we had some rain. Okay. Well then, you know, fix it, make sure it doesn't happen again. And then you hear that and you just have to kind of rely on a lot of people. And they're like, okay, we replaced the new belts, cost a couple hundred bucks, threw the belts back on. And you get a call the next day and be like, hey, the belts got thrown off again. And they're like, well, then what happened? They're like, well, here's the thing. We forgot to put on the belt guard. <laughs> and you're just like, why did you forget to put on the belt guard? It's like, yes, it was heavy. Yeah, so <laughs> like, you know, that's how, you know, we finally got on a spot. It's like, man, we've, we fixed everything out on our leases. So there's nothing that can break now. And then we get a call. It's like, hey, it's been, we've had historical flooding up in Oklahoma. 30 our inches of rain. Our, our, our lease roads are washed out. We got to rebuild the road. And I'm like, shit, how much going to be like five, 10 grand to rebuild that lease road? How much is that going to cost us? And then, you know, I get an OCC field agent going out there. He's like, you know, I was like, how'd you make it out on the lease to give me these, these fines? I heard that road is just destroyed. He's like, no, the road's fine. I made it out. No problem. It's like, okay, so do we have a bad road or, <laughs> or not? <laughs> and then, and then, no. So a nice tip for Texas. I don't know if this is good with the OCC, but, you know, we have a lot of roads. We have a lot of lease roads, and they get beat up with the haulers, the trucks, the rigs coming in and out. Yeah. Oil dirt. So I don't know what the laws and rules are for oil dirt right now. We have a compliance department that kind of handles, handles that stuff for us. But oil dirt, you essentially mix, you know, contaminated oil soil that is kind of around the well wellhead and whatnot. You mix it with real dirt. And if it has a certain amount of parts per million, you can throw that on the road. And if you just pack it properly, you pretty much got a new road. Jake's talking about going and get his tractor from his dad's house. He's like, I'm just going to go up there at Oklahoma and I'm going to fix this road myself. <laughs> hey, man, bootstrap it. I like it. Farm boy Jake lead. out there with the tractor. <laughs> Listen to little John Denver. Thank God I'm a country boy. <laughs> Shake's up there. He's calling me. He's like, hey. Bad news, I tore up everything else. <laughs> Didn't fix anything. <laughs> but I dug a swimming pool. <laughs> man. Yeah, that's, man, I had, I had an engineer call me the other day, and he's like, hey, I'm looking at, you know, buying this small stripper well package. He works uh, part-time as a completions engineer. And I told him, I was straight, I was straight up, I said, like, dude, I was like, if you're still working full-time as a completions engineer, you better be, like, prepared. It's hard, man, to operate those those small assets if you don't have a technical team to help you run the day-to-day -day operations. And then, it, the choir. Yeah, and then, you know, you look at y'all's operation, you're spread out in all these different states. So how do you guys kind of handle that? Because I'm assuming that, you know, all your engineers and everything are here in Houston. Do you guys actually have any field offices? And then, also, I didn't know this, but you just mentioned that you have vertically integrated service companies, like your own rigs, too. Do you guys, you know, just have rigs around some of kind of your big aggregated lease positions, or how do you handle all that? Man, that was a question that I started quickly answering myself, because I would, when I first started, I mean, a young intern at my father's company, I was like, how do you know, like, how do these engineers know every single well's name? There's thousands of them, right? So 
what we do is, yes, you're right. All of our engineers are based out of Houston, but we do have some engineers kind of, you know, baked into certain areas. So we have in Midland, we have an engineer out there and a geologist who kind of just watch our acreage plays and kind of see what's going on around us. If, if Oxy or COG is kind of starting to drill in our, in our general vicinity, mm-hmm. well, you know, we'll knock on the door and tell them, Hey, you want some acreage? You, want, yeah. <laughs> you guys want to have a, a longer lateral? You can come buy this acreage for a, you know, a certain price. And, yeah. uh, you know, we started doing that and, you know, we have, we have all sorts of different people in different areas that required that specific expertise. Like specifically in California, we have an EPA guy. And obviously in California, it's much harder to operate because the California state laws are a little bit more strict. The right? regulations are so, man, I went out there one time to run an expandable for, I think it was Brightburn several years ago. And I mean, their, their leak off test was minimal. I mean, I'm talking about minimal leak off and California is making them run this $300,000 expandable to patch it up or else P&A the well. Yeah. And that's, so each area has a very specific person or duty that it kind of takes over, but all the engineers that we have here in Houston, each engineer kind of takes over a specific area, right? So they take over, there's one engineer who watches over South Texas. There's one engineer that watches over North Texas, West Texas, East Texas. Then Oklahoma, Kansas gets his own engineer, you know, there's different engineers for different areas. And these guys just kind of all get together. We have daily meetings. There's a round table that happens literally every day. Everybody sits down, talks about what's going right, what's going wrong, and what can we do to fix it? What can we do to be more efficient? So then with that, we have these individual engineers who are all extremely intelligent. And they're able to, the South Texas guy can hear how the West Texas guy is handling his problems. And he's like, oh, I can incorporate that here, right? And like you said, we are vertically integrated service company, Delta Petroleum. We only service Atlas operating wells. We have 12, I think, workover rigs or drilling rigs. And one of those drilling rigs can go pretty deep. They, it can drill Wolf Camp wells and the Permian for us. Vacuum trucks, hot oiling trucks. I mean, a roustabout teams of roustabouts, you know, a rig guys, anybody, yeah, anything you can imagine. That's pretty impressive because, you know, if someone's listening that's not familiar with OFS, I mean, all of these are services that could be standalone services, right? Like a, oh, dr- yeah. a drilling company, a workover company, hot oil, water hauling, et cetera, et cetera. So it's pretty impressive that you guys are able to manage those operations. As- and we go through, I would say that, you know, turnover is not key for us because we you know, whoever kind of comes into our company, we're not an Exxon, right? We don't have, you know, 10 positions doing one job. When we give somebody a job, we expect them to do it and they usually do it very well, right? And everybody that's worked with us, I would say that they've done fantastic things, man. Even the guys that have worked with us in the past that kind of just needed some experience and that their end trajectory was to work at a major and whatnot. I mean, there was one engineer who worked with us and I mean, he's now working at a much larger company and he just said that the experience that I got from being exposed to every aspect of the business, like you said, I mean, a rig company, that's a company in itself. And there's many, many companies that are just rigs. Yeah. And understanding that, hey, the nuances between a roustabout and a rig operator and the nuances between a rig operator and a Derek can, mm-hmm. it's very, very different. And we get exposed, everybody that works in our company gets exposed to many, many different aspects. And that's what those roundtable meetings kind of offer is that, hey, I'm having problems in this area because, hey, I can't find rig operators because all the rig operators are getting up and leaving and they're jetting towards the, jetting towards the Permian because, you know, the majors are offering, you know, double the salary over there to, to get people on rigs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's all these intricate details that kind of come with the oil and gas industry. And I'm 
I'm frankly, I'm dumbing it down right now to make it sound like it's not that hard. It's there's a guys, there's a reason I'm in the office, you know, so many hours. There's a reason why we have so many guys on our staff that are always available because there's so much to do. Mm-hmm. But the way I look at it, we're blessed, man. I would rather be so busy than just be sitting at home doing nothing. Yeah. yeah. So, so most companies have like their whole core acreage philosophy, but you guys are obviously spread out across seven states. What is your philosophy on finding new deals? So you know what? I really like the core philosophy from a larger company standpoint because all their non-core assets, they're not valuable to a company like, you know, like an Exxon. Their non-core asset that's in, you know, in East Texas that's, you know, really close to our field, they don't really care about it, right? So I just go in there and I just say, hey, Exxon, get rid of your overhead, get rid of your GNA. We'll take over this and we'll take it take over for this price. And they're like, wow, that's great. Okay. We'll sell it to you guys. And um, we get usually great deals. So what we do is we identify non-core areas for major companies and we purchase them and we do it at a very quick rate as well. And that's one thing where I think companies enjoy working with us and why we're we're doing so many deals is that we are aggressive in our pricing, but we're also aggressive on our closing time. So whenever we do sign a deal, I don't think we've ever signed a deal. Actually, I can confirm, I've never signed a deal with a PSA and I've not closed. I've always closed. And frankly, we always close on time. We and getting a reputation of closing becomes so much leverage when purchasing assets. Actually, I was just reading a commercial real estate book by Grant Cardone, and he said that was his biggest, it's his biggest tool that he has is just the confidence of sellers to be able to close. And it allows him the ability to get good deals on assets. Man, we, we've done that. So we recently de- did that on the real estate side as well. So one thing that people really don't know about us is that we have a very large real estate company as well. And that's how we diversified. That was my father's genius move, man. In the late 90s, he said, I can't handle $8 of oil and gas and what he had to deal with in the late 80s and early 90s. So he's like, I have to find a way to hedge and diversify. So we started buying commercial real estate around Houston and Canada and all these different places. And that commercial real estate, it's appreciated because oil and gas, it's a depreciating asset. Every time Mm -hmm. I pull a barrel out of the ground, my reserves go down. But every time I buy a property, every year that passes, my value goes up because, I mean, if I look at, you know, downtown Houston or in the Galleria in Houston, if I bought a property that was worth, let's say a million dollars 10 years ago, that property is probably worth $10 million Mm -hmm. right now because the developers are kind of coming in and they're saying, hey, we want to build. There's so little space in these areas that are highly condensed now. Everybody has to go up. You have to go vertical. You can't build you can't build another gallery in Houston because there's just not enough space anymore unless yeah. you want to spend, you know, an arm and a leg. So that philosophy of going to owners and saying that listen, we will buy whether it's oil and gas or real estate. This you have your property valued at let's just say 10 million dollars. And we've been very successful at this. You guys want to exit the space and you want to get rid of this asset. We'll buy this property for or asset for 7 million dollars. It's obviously a discount and it's not as much as you want. However, we'll buy it in cash and we'll close within 15 days. And all we need to see is, do you have clean title? Is there no environmental issues? As long as there's no major red flags, we'll close. And we've been really, really successful in that. And a lot of people, they're just, they don't really believe us in the beginning, right? Because not many people have heard of Atlas Operating or State Venture. That's our real estate company. And they're like, well, who are you guys, right? How do we know you can close? How are you? Why are you offering this much money on a deal that's this big? And we put it out there. And recently in the real estate real estate side, which we've grown tremendously, we bought three pretty major commercial buildings here in great parts of Houston. One by the Galleria, one on the 610 South Loop, and one right on Westheimer. 
And there's probably about 400,000 square feet of space that we just bought. And we're actually moving our headquarters to San Felipe and Post Oak. I drove by that building the other day. Yeah. We're renting some marathons here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's our building. And we're going to be moving into the top floor there. And we're taking up the entire floor or most of the entire floor. And uh, Which is crazy because you guys literally just moved from Cyprus down to where are you at now? So we're at 3501 Allen Parkway. So we're at Allen Parkway. So, yeah. I mean, we, and we moved into that building because... We just needed a reason to move, right? And it's a small little building that we currently own right now. It's 4,200 square feet. Just It was just enough for us at that time. But over the past six months, we've grown at such a tremendous rate because, frankly, me and our CFO, my brother-in-law, we're a really, really good team. We work really well together. I mean, I'm fast and aggressive and maybe a little bit, you know, might shoot from the hip sometimes a little bit too much. <laughs> and he's calm and collected and stoic and he'll listen and he'll be like, Yusuf, that's a bad deal. Or Yusuf, that's a good deal. Let's get it. And we'll just kind of, we've been, we've been able to kind of grow this, the company just over the past six months, I would say by, if I had to put it, if I had to quantify it, we've doubled it over the past six months. And over the past five years that I've been working, I've about tripled it. So impressive, man. yeah, we're really, really, we're humbled, frankly, to be in the position that we're in because man, it could be taken away tomorrow. All this stuff, something could happen. You know, we're not, we're not naive to the fact that we're not you know, we're not Amazon. I even think Amazon said they're not too big to fail. We're not too big to fail, man. We act like every dollar counts. We're mm-hmm. not. And that's something that we take very, we take a lot of pride in that. What's also different is your family owned company. Yeah. It's uh, so it literally is every dollar is your own money. So you should have more attention to detail, right? You're right, man. And we're the same, Fair. same way with our wells. It's like, no, I want to spend that extra $5. I want to go out there and do this rope myself. <laughs> it's true, man. I, if, it was, if it was up to my dad, and I think I mentioned this before, it's the guy still goes to spring to get his haircut. And I'm just like, pops. I'm like, why are you going to spring to get, get your haircut? He's like, it's nine bucks, man. He's like, he's like, I could cut my own hair if I want to do. But uh, he's just like, I'll just go over there. And I'm just like, and I took him to the Argyle League in Montrose. And it was a $50 is that, haircut. Is that who does your hair? Actually, nobody does my hair right now, Jake. Obviously. If you can't tell, it's I'm, I'm letting it grow out. I have a beautiful head of hair. I'm very sensitive about it. Don't make fun of it. I have a delicate constitution, so don't don't attack it, okay? So, no. So, I was like, Pops, why are you doing that? And he's like, why would I spend $50 on a haircut when I could spend $9? And, you know, he takes that same mentality into the oil field, into all the businesses that he does. And he took that into the book as well. I mean- you know, when he published the book and he, it's, it's online, you can buy it on amazon.com. You can buy it on his website. hundred percent of the proceeds go to his foundation that he actually founded because what's his foundation, what's, it's called what's the, YB, the it's YBC foundation. He realized shortly, probably in the past, like 15 years, he's like, I have more than I could, I need. Right. And he's like, and this country has given me so much. And this, I mean, frankly, he's been given so much and he's like, I want to give back. And he's recently, you know, built some projects. He's his next project right now, and I think that's what the books, all the books funding is essentially going there, is he wants to build a retirement community slash apartment complex and donate it essentially and have people where they can come, where elderly people can come and they, if doctors on staff, free living. So people can come to a place. I mean, they can eat for free. They can, they can live instead of, because there's so many, there's a lack of so many places that are able to give. And there's so many people who are trying to give, but it's just, it's so hard to do. So what he said is he said, I'm just going to do it. And Jake mentioned in the beginning, uh, me and my brother-in-law have essentially just taken over the company right now and doing all the, all the day-to-day and all the big picture stuff as well now. 
he's really focused on the foundation and and how he kind of takes it to grow. And actually, he doesn't even take a salary from the company anymore. Wow. He's like, I don't, I don't need it. I don't want it. And you guys run this company, make it great. And before, you know, my dad, I kind of mentioned in the early, he was really, really like, hey, don't fuck this up. And I think now he's kind of changed his tone. And he's just like, he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, you guys have done really well. And I'm, 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 I'm proud to say that he kind of, he gave me my first attaboy the other day. So uh, <laughs> I said, now he's proud of you, man. Yeah, he's pr- finally proud of me. It took you 28 years. That's gonna, yeah, it took me. <laughs> that's going to be useless book. It's going to be titled from little shithead to dad's. <laughs> Pride and joy. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, there's definitely going to be a follow-up, uh, my own book, yeah. about how I've struggled. So, man, before we end this, so guys, if you want to buy this book, one, I'm sure it's a great book. Yusuf brought us a few copies, so I'm going to be diving into it. All the proceeds go to a great cause. Where can people find this book at? Where can they buy it? So you can go to Amazon.com. Everything's on Amazon these days. So that's, that was the, frankly, it's probably the cheapest way to buy it now because if we we published it through Amazon, and that was one of the things that he said, he's like, I want people to buy this book. I want people to be able to read it. Mm-hmm. And 100% of it goes to the foundation anyways. Awesome. Uh, and so he actually was able to reduce the price through Amazon. I think it, it cost, I think, like 18 bucks to produce. And he's selling it for like, I think, $18. Very so nice. he's not trying to... He's not trying to turn any any sort of a profit. He really just wants to kind of give his story back to the world. Yeah. So if you want to look up this book, again, it's called From Dirt Roads to Black Gold. Here it is for the cameras. You can see it right there. Go on Amazon. Find it. Great read. I'm sure Yusuf's going to have his own book someday. Man, maybe next time you tell a story about you know, your car's getting flooded during Hurricane Harvey, Man, include that in the uh, in the book. No, maybe, maybe we can put that in the vlog. So we're actually about to leave here. We're going to do some crazy stuff on the vlog. So if you want to yeah. catch that. You guys need to go and subscribe to Digital Walkheader's YouTube channel. Yep. So are you on LinkedIn, man? Can people find you on LinkedIn? I am on LinkedIn. Yusuf Chaudhry, just look me up and look uh, up. I'm I'm all over LinkedIn. And hey, man, anybody is interested in, in deals, talking deals, anything that Atlas Operating can help in, man, we're really excited to be growing at the pace that we're growing in. And, you know, we're going to be selling some of our non-core assets as well pretty soon. So awesome. if anybody who wants to kind of look at those, we're, we're very open to helping. And, you know, we have a very, very great technical team that's able to answer all questions. All questions. Yeah. Awesome, man. Yusuf, appreciate you coming on the show, dude. Pleasure, boys. Let's go have some fun. All right. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to go reach out to Yusuf, connect with him on LinkedIn, check out the book as well. If you like the show, please leave a rating and review. Obviously, this is a third EMP podcast. We want to get some feedback from you guys. What did you think? What do you think of Yusuf? Is he the real deal? Is he not? <laughs> calling him out here. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll catch you on the next episode. Come, 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 come.